0: Tonight we continue our study in First Timothy, one of the epistles that Paul wrote to his son in the gospel whom he loved and appreciated so very much, and one in whom he had extreme confidence and one who proved himself, Timothy, that is, to be worthy of Paul's confidence because he was a consistent, faithful laborer in the kingdom of God. This morning we looked at chapter 3, the first seven verses, where the qualifications for elders in the Lord's church are given. And we talked about the importance of of that work, the various terms that are used to describe those who are the elders, that bishop is one of the terms, elder itself is a term, shepherds or pastors, uh, another of the terms that describe the great work that God has given elders to do. And indeed, the relationship between elders and the congregation should be a relationship that is a beautiful, harmonious relationship. And much is said in Scripture throughout about that relationship. We concentrated on the qualifications this morning for the elders, but in verse 8, Paul turns his attention to another very important work in the kingdom of God, in the church of our Lord, and that is the work of deacons. The word for deacons that is often used in Scripture, diakonos, is just simply a word that means servant, one who is a servant. And it's used in in various ways in Scripture, not always as a uh, specific office in the church, but at times it's used to describe those who are just Secular servants, those who served in the secular realm. For example, in uh, uh, John chapter 2, we have such a reference, where at the wedding in Cana, in verse 5 of chapter 2, the Lord's mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Well, that's that word uh, for deacon, but it just simply means a servant in the general sense. And again, at verse nine in that chapter, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and so on. So, there you have servant simply used in the um, in the secular sense. And then we also see in Scripture the word used in reference to serving in the kingdom of God in in general. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, you find this same word in the original language, but here, as it is often translated, it's translated as ministers. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 5. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers, and there's our word for deacon, ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. And so quite often this word, that is translated deacon at times is translated mostly as servant or many times as ministers, but it's from the same word in the original. We also see that over in the Ephesian letter, just one more example of that. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 7, of which I became a minister, Paul says, according to the gift of the grace of God given to me, by the effective working of his power. When he says, of which I became a minister, he uses the word that we're looking at tonight in 1 Timothy three, uh, beginning at verse 8, which is the word uh, deacon. It's interesting that if you look at Mark uh, chapter ten, we also find the Lord himself using this uh, word, uh, diakonos, the word for deacon, regarding his own work in giving himself for the sins of mankind. In Mark chapter 10, verses 43 through 45, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, he's speaking to his apostles, you uh, shall become, shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. And then verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus uses the word in reference to himself and the work that he would do, the redemptive work, in giving his life, shedding his blood for the sins of mankind. But obviously the word is also used in the technical sense, if you will, for the official work or the official office, if you will, of deacon in the Lord's church. And that's what we're looking at in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. When Paul writes, likewise deacons, he's speaking of those who were the special servants appointed to a special service in the Lord's church. And incidentally, one more example of this is in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 where the full organization of the church, as we've mentioned before when we studied this epistle, is is uh, mentioned. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints, they're the Christians, in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops, they're the elders, and deacons. So there we have an address to a fully organized, scripturally organized body of people at Philippi. Christians overseen by the bishops, who are the elders, of course, and then the deacons who serve in this special way as special servants. A deacon in the Lord's church is generally one who is younger than an elder, though certainly that's not always the case. But many times that is the case. And there is a distinction, as we shall see as we go forward in our, in our study tonight, a difference in the requirement regarding children for the elders to have believing children, but there is no such uh, a qualification required of deacons, simply that they have children and a family, uh, obviously, but nothing is said either here or in Titus chapter 1 where qualifications for elders are mentioned, nothing mentioned about deacons there, but there is a distinction in terms of the children of each one, elders to have believing children. That requirement is not there for deacons. That would generally indicate that the deacon is a younger man who can serve as a deacon even before his children obey the gospel. Whereas the elder is an older man and generally has children who are older and needs to have those who are uh, believing children as we pointed out this morning. So likewise, he says, deacons, and so he turns his attention to the deacons, and many of these qualifications are the same, and as we mentioned this morning, we don't need to think that all of these qualifications apply to either elders or deacons or to both, but not to Christians, because as we mentioned this morning, many of these qualifications are certainly incumbent upon every one of us to possess as Christians, and uh, we should strive to possess these characteristics. But when he says, likewise, deacons must be reverent or grave as it is sometimes translated. The idea here is they are serious about what they are doing. There's a, there's a certain dignity about these men. They are not uh, flighty uh, individuals. They're not silly individuals. They're, they're individuals who are serious and who take very seriously the work they do and who exhibit reverence in their lives. He then mentions not double Tongued, not double tongued. Well, that could involve, of course, saying one thing to one person and something else to another. You know, as deacons would go about their their work, perhaps in that day, especially from house to house, taking care of certain uh, physical needs of families and so forth in the congregation. They need to be consistent in their speech, not double tongued, not saying one thing to a person's face and another thing behind a person's back. We would talk about people who are two-faced, and uh, and, uh, that's a term that we hear more than double-tongued. But the idea is much the same. In fact, Thayer in his Greek lexicon said it was, in effect, saying one thing to one person and then something totally different to another, an inconsistency, a hypocrisy, really. In that sense. And then he mentions something we've already talked about this morning in regard to elders. Not given too much wine and as we said this morning because it says of the elder that he's not to be given to wine verse 3 of chapter 3 and it says here not given to much wine that is not saying that the deacon can be given to uh, some wine but not uh, not too much he can uh, he can drink more rather than the uh, elder the elder can't drink any but the deacon can drink more both of the phrases are exactly equivalent and both require uh, abstinence on the part of these individuals who are not to be uh, given to becoming drunken in any stage or degree of that, not to turn the mind toward or to be addicted to much wine is the idea here. And we've talked about before that wine in the Bible is used in in various uh, ways and that the word wine can refer to simply the juice of the grape or the word wine can refer to something that is intoxicating as well. But even in the Old Testament you have the word wine uh, used when uh, simply the juice of the grape is uh, under consideration. Gladness is taken away and joy from the plentiful field. In the vineyards there will be no singing nor will there be shouting. No treaders will tread out wine in the presses. I have made their shouting cease. That's Isaiah 16 and verse 10. The wine treading out what? Wine in the presses. What do you tread out in the presses? You tread out grapes. And yet the Holy Spirit reveals the word, here uses the word wine in Isaiah's prophecy. And so wine in this text is obviously used when it is still in the grape. It is the fresh juice of the grape. You have that same uh, reference to it over in the Revelation letter at chapter 14. 14. Verses 19 and 20, verse uh, 15 of chapter 19, that same way. But then, of course, you have it used where an intoxicating beverage is obviously under consideration. In Ephesians 5 and uh, verse 18, we're well familiar with the admonition, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. Well, obviously, in that context, wine is intoxicating in that context because you can't get drunk with something that is not intoxicating. So obviously in that context, when Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, he has in mind that which can intoxicate. Intoxicate. But the word oinos in the Greek is used to describe grape juice in the same way that it's used to describe an intoxicating beverage. The word is exactly the same in the original. And the context has to determine whether or not one is speaking of an intoxicating beverage or simply one that is not intoxicating. And, of course, time doesn't permit us to go into great detail. We have done so in more detail in in the past in talking about these matters. But in John chapter 2, when Jesus made wine at the wedding in Cana, who is to uh, believe that the Lord would make in that great a quantity that which would be a highly intoxicating beverage or even intoxicating at all? Obviously, he made wine, but wine is often used to describe that which is unfermented and is simply the fresh juice of the grape And indeed, that was considered even in Roman times. And in the Roman culture, the best wine was the wine that was not intoxicating. And even when one was dealing in that day with an intoxicating wine, as we've said before, to compare the intoxicating wine of that day, even the intoxicating wine of that day with the table wines of today would be an apples and oranges comparison. There is no similarity whatsoever. It is said that based upon the fermentation process that takes place and that ceases at a certain point because of the sugar content and the fact that the fermentation can only reach about half of the sugar content that is in the grape juice to begin with, even if nothing is done to it, that would make it something like 10 or 11%. But the fermentation process that could be stopped even in ancient times and quite often was stopped, in ancient times so that it preserved the pure juice of the grape, and in a gel form they added that with water, heated it, boiled it, and drank that liquid as a non-intoxicating beverage. Even when wine was intoxicated, it was considered a very light wine with an intoxic alcohol content uh, of 7 to 10 percent. There was no such thing as distillation then. That came much later in the Middle Ages when uh, all of that was added. And the idea of whiskey and liquor was totally foreign to the strongest drink that the Bible ever discusses. But the alcohol content of light wine in Bible times would have been somewhere between 7 and 10%, and then it was, if it was consumed like that, it was never consumed like that by most people, if at all. It was always diluted with water. And so... There is no justification whatsoever from an examination of the Bible's description of wine, or strong drink for that matter, no justification, as we mentioned this morning, for the social drinking that some tragically advocate today. And so they are not to be given to much wine, or not addicted to wine, not to be given to wine. They are to be sober in more ways than one, physically sober as well as mentally uh, sober. And then, not greedy for money is also mentioned in reference here to the deacons uh, in verse 8, as it is mentioned uh, earlier in the chapter regarding the elders. And of course, the deacons quite often handle money, and therefore it is important that they be free of the characteristic of greed or the desire for dishonest gain. They need to be completely Trustworthy men. And then verse 9 is an interesting verse, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. You know, know, we think of mystery today and we think of something that is uh, not only unknown, but maybe unknowable. Something that we really can't, uh, we can't solve. Well, that's not the meaning of mystery as it is used in Scripture. The meaning of mystery as it is used in Scripture is the idea of a hidden truth or a yet unrevealed truth. And it was the case that in olden times and in the times of the prophets, in Old Testament times, the mystery of the faith had not been revealed. What was the mystery of the faith? That which was still unrevealed, that ultimately... Both Jew and Gentile would be brought into covenant relationship with God. The coming of the faith, the coming of Christianity, the fulfillment of God's plan that he had in mind long before the law of Moses was ever established as he began to unfold that scheme of redemption through a plan that would ultimately bring in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, 4, the Christ who would die for the sins of the world. That's the mystery of the faith, unrevealed, hidden, but slowly and ultimately and surely and finally and completely revealed in Christ and in Christianity. So it was not something that was unknowable. The gospel is not something that you can't know. The gospel is just the opposite. The gospel is knowable. Jesus said in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The truth is equivalent to the gospel. The truth is equivalent to the mystery that had been otherwise in former times hidden, but now revealed. And what he says here concerning the deacons is that they are to hold, and that's a present tense word there, meaning keep on holding to the faith and do it with a pure conscience. You know, Timothy was dealing with folks at Ephesus, many of whom had abandoned their pure conscience, obviously, and were causing problems in the Lord's church there. He was not to abandon his pure conscience, as some at Ephesus had no doubt done. But he was to hold the faith, Christianity, with a pure conscience. You know something this suggests that is so vitally important that we mention here, and that is that deacons, deacons are to be spiritually minded individuals. Sometimes we may lose sight of that, or some might lose sight of that and think, well, deacons, they carry out physical tasks, they do a great work in that regard, but maybe it's not quite so important that they um, that they be uh, as doctrinally sound. Well, that's just completely false. Deacons are to be spiritually minded. We're all to be doctrinally sound. But the point is they're to be spiritually mature. Now, they may not have the ultimate maturity that an elder has based upon further study and age and experience and wisdom, but there, there is no spiritual immaturity that is excused in a deacon. Just the opposite is to be the case. He is to be a very spiritually minded individual. Otherwise, verse 9 means nothing, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. In other words, he is to be a spiritually minded Individual. Beyond that, verse 10 tells us he is to be a tested individual. But let those also first be tested. In other words, proved over a period of time. He needs to be proved over a, a period of time. You just don't make a man a deacon uh, in uh, the first days of his uh, conversion any more than you would make a man an elder. In the the early days of his conversion, remember what we talked about this morning, that verse 6 of 1 Timothy 3 concerning the elder says he is not to be a novice. He's not to be a new convert. Well, neither should a deacon uh, obviously be a new convert. There needs to be some testing time. There needs to be some proving time so that he can be considered, what? Blameless found blameless, but let those also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Well, it takes time before you can determine and have the confidence in an individual that he is indeed blameless. Now, that doesn't mean you have to wait years and years uh, before that is done. We use common sense when it comes to that. And an individual who comes into a congregation may have been a faithful deacon or a faithful elder, for that matter, in another congregation somewhere else. Does it take years before he uh is tested and proved to serve as either an elder or deacon? Well certainly not. Uh, it shouldn't take uh that long, but it does take some time. And that's what's indicated here in this verse. So that there's no public charge against these individuals. And then verse eleven. In verse eleven, the Apostle Paul turns its attention to, as the New King James translated translates it, their wives. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, would this verse also apply to the wives of elders? I think indeed it would. Obviously, it, it would if it is indeed the wives who are being considered here then the elders' wives would be considered here as well as the deacons' wives. Now when I say if it is the wives who are being considered here, why would there be any doubt that these are the wives? Well, some, because of the fact that the word in the original language of the New Testament for women and the word for wives, it's the same word. It's the very same word. Gune is a word that means can be translated women depending upon the context or depending upon the context it would be translated wives. It's like that word oinos, the word for wine, the context has to determine whether you're talking about an intoxicating beverage or a non-intoxicating beverage. The, The same thing is true here when it comes to the word for women. The word for women is the same as the word for wives. Well, what would you think Paul would be talking about here in verse 11? In the context, it seems clear to me he has to be talking about their wives, Thus, I think the New King James and other translations that translate it wives are exactly correct here. Well, what if it is women, just the women? And the word there is in italics, but likewise women must be reverent. Well, of course, there are certain characteristics that all women must possess in the church, and uh, I think all of them mentioned here are characteristics all women should have, but there are some who have contended that uh, that this was a special class of women who were deaconesses and that we're talking about a special class here of official uh, position, uh, a, an official position in the church for deaconesses. I don't believe that for uh, a minute. Nowhere do you find any evidence in the New Testament that there was a special class of deaconesses or female deacons. I realize that in Romans 16 chapter 1, Phoebe if you recall, is called there a servant. And the word there for servant is the same word that we've already examined that's used in all sorts of contexts throughout the New Testament. It is the word from which we get our word deacon. Was Paul saying that Phoebe was a female deacon officially as that office? I do not believe so for a moment. He was just saying she was a servant. Phoebe was a servant. Were there women who could carry out special uh Uh, roles and works in the church without being official deaconesses? Why, of course, of course they could and should and still do. But there is no official office, if you will, mentioned in the New Testament for these women. So I believe it is clear from the context that what Paul refers to here is the wives, the wives of elders, the wives of deacons. But as we said, the qualifications here should apply to every woman in the church. And what are they? Well, that they be reverent, that they be serious-minded, that they be uh, dignified. And then he says, not slanderers. And this has to do with the use of the tongue. And the idea here is that they are not malicious gossips, but that they do guard their tongues. We should always realize the seriousness of the tongue and its misuse and the damage that can be done from the abuse and misuse of the tongue. And this is another passage that makes it abundantly clear. James chapter 3, the use of the tongue for men or women, obviously, is, is uh, addressed there. So much is said in Scripture about the guarding of one's tongue and the damage that can be done when one is not careful about so doing. And so they're not to be malicious gossips. They are to be temperate, that is, controlled, under control, and self-controlled, obviously, faithful in all things. These wives are to be trustworthy in their service in the kingdom, able to be relied upon. And then verse 12, he gets back to the deacons again. And here the deacons, as with the elders, are to be the husbands of one wife. The husbands of one wife. Same thing is meant here that we said it meant this morning in relation to the elders, that they are to have wives. They are to be married men. Deacons are to be married men as elders are obviously to be married men. Now, as we mentioned a few moments ago, nothing is said here or elsewhere about the children of deacons in terms of requiring that their children be Christians or that they be believing children in the sense that they have obeyed the gospel. And that would indicate and implicate, uh, imply that many times the deacons are younger men. They can serve as deacons even before their children become Christians. They have younger children, but they are still charged with the responsibility of ruling their children and their own houses well in the sense that their wives are in subjection in the proper manner as the scripture enjoins upon us, and that their children are obedient children, that they are orderly children, that these men obviously are the heads of their households, and that that is evident in their lives. And then the final verse at which we look tonight, verse 13, describes something of the reward that comes to serving the lord in a special capacity such as a deacon or an elder for that matter but it's mentioned here specifically in regard to deacons for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus they obtain for themselves if they've served well good standing in other words they have achieved a level of trustworthiness among the members of the Lord's Church who look upon them as being men that are go-to men, so to speak, men upon whom you can rely, men you can count on, men who are the right kind of men, who have that kind of reputation, who have proved themselves to be trustworthy, a trustworthiness that leads perhaps even to greater service in the kingdom, perhaps ultimately to prove themselves as deacons, and ultimately be able to serve as elders. That does not mean that every man who ever becomes a deacon should, should become an elder or would become an elder, but many times that does occur. But they have proved themselves to be trustworthy, and that may lead to greater service, and it does lead to great boldness, that is assurance in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. The more we yield ourselves to the Lord in service to Him in every way that we can, the more we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more we grow in the faith, the more we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the greater boldness that we have as His servants. Boldness meaning meaning what? Assurance, confidence, and the courage to speak plainly and clearly, and to stand firmly for the truth. These men who serve well in this capacity, Paul says, are men who mature to a point to where they have that great assurance and that great boldness in the faith. What about you tonight? Are you in the faith? If you're not a Christian, then to be in the faith is to be a Christian, and to be a Christian is to believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, to repent of your sins, to confess Jesus as the Christ, and then to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. And if you have left the faith, know that you have brought reproach upon the church in a public way, then come home to your first love in repentance, confession of sin, and restore that precious, precious relationship with God. As we stand to sing, we invite you to come.